0: Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. Each week we seem to get more news about violent deaths in America. Last week it was from Charlotte and New York, and next week it's sure to be somewhere else. What is it with America and violence, America and guns? And what can books tell us about it? Today we're going to talk about how violence manifests itself in American literature. From the brutal westerns of Cormac McCarthy to the insightful nonfiction of authors like Steven Pinker and the hard hitting journalism of Dave
1: Cullen. Our guest today is journalist Gary Young, and he's tackled the gnarly topic of gun violence in the United States. Gary is an author, broadcaster, and award winning columnist for The Guardian. Who is based in Chicago for several years until recently moving back to Hackney in London with his family? He also writes a monthly column for The Nation magazine and is the Alfred Nobler Fellow for The Nation Institute. Born in Britain to Barbadian parents, Young reported all over Europe, Africa, and the Caribbean before being appointed The Guardian's US correspondent in 2003. And in 2009, he won Britain's prestigious James Cameron Award for combined moral vision and professional integrity.
0: Very serious. Pretty
1: serious and awesome. Um, nice guy yeah he's super laid back yeah uh in his moving and important new book another day in the death of america he tells the stories of 10 children who died from gun violence in america on a random day in 2013
0: so we'll be interviewing gary talking more
1: generally about the theme and as always recommending some books at the end with
0: gary so stick around for the next hour of literary friction Gary Young, thank you for coming on Literary Friction. We've asked you to start with a reading. Could you please set it up?
2: Uh, Sure. This is from the introduction of my book, Uh, Another Day in the Death of America. The most common adjective employed by weather reporters on Saturday, the 23rd of November 2013, was treacherous. But in reality, there wasn't a hint of betrayal about it. The day was every bit as foul as one would expect the week before Thanksgiving. A Nordic outbreak of snow, rain, and high winds barreled through the desert states and northern plains towards the Midwest. There was precious little in the news to distract anyone from these inclement conditions. A poll that day showed Barack Obama suffering his lowest approval ratings for several years, and another poll revealed that two-thirds of Americans thought the country was heading in the wrong direction. That night, Fox News was the most popular cable news channel, The Hunger Games, Catching Fire, was the highest-grossing movie, and the college football game between Baylor and Oklahoma State was the most watched programme on television. It was just another day in America, and as befits an unremarkable Saturday in America, ten children and teens were killed by gunfire. Like the weather that day, none of them would make big news beyond their immediate locale, because, like the weather, their deaths did not intrude on the accepted order of things, but conformed to it. So in terms of what one might expect of a Saturday in America, there wasn't a hint of betrayal about this, either. It's it's precisely the tally the nation has come to expect. Every day, on average, seven children and teens are killed by guns. Firearms are the leading cause of death among black children under the age of 19, and a second leading cause of death for all children of the same age group after car accidents. Each individual death is experienced as a family tragedy that ripples through a community, but the sum total barely earns a national shrug. It's that certainty on which this book is premised. The proposition is straightforward. To pick a day and find the cases of as many young people who were shot dead that day as I could and report on them. Now there were other days, earlier or later that week, when at least seven children and teens were shot dead, but they were not the days I happened to choose. This isn't a selection of the most compelling cases possible, it's a narration of the deaths that happened. Pick a different day, you get a different book. Fate chose the victims, time shapes the narrative. And so on this day, like most others, they fell across America in all its diverse glory, in slums and suburbs, north, south, west, and midwest, in rural hamlets and huge cities, black, Latino, and white, by accident and on purpose, at a sleepover, after an altercation, by bullets that met their target and others that went astray. The youngest was nine, the oldest 19.
0: Thanks, Kerry. I think that sets the book up very well. You've taken a random day, a day that really doesn't mean much, it's quite Mm. a normal day, and looked at all of the children and young adults who were killed on that day with gun violence. So first I wanted to ask you, why did you want this day to be
2: random? I thought there was more power in it being random. I thought that if you... um, One could have picked a resonant day like um, the anniversary of Sandy Hook or the day before it was the 50th anniversary of JFK's assassination. Um, but that would somehow have tied it to whatever the the other thing was. Um, you know, the anniversary. Um, and I thought there was more power in it just standing alone. So you said, look, this is any day. And not gaming the day so that notion that well if you pick a different day you get different stories that you know i could have rifled through different days and thought oh there's too many gun gang deaths in this one or there's too many black kids in this one or it's just unrepresentative in a range of ways but i think there's a power in 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 Kind of closing your eyes sticking a pin in the wall and saying well we're going to do this one because it means it could be today or tomorrow or yesterday
1: one of the things that stands out is that obviously all the victims are male which Mm. you know is random like you said and i think the randomness of the day is what maintains the integrity of the project because it means that there's no bias right Mm. um but i thought it was really interesting one of the one of the purposes female um, and uh, is the best friend of, of the boy that she kills, and it's an accidental death and everything but I realized that it it, it showed open it, fl- it blew open my own gender bias, I suppose, yeah. and the fact that she was a known gang member, but the way that the community respond to her is so different from say the, the boy in the story before Brandon who accidentally we yeah. suppose killed Tyler Dunn. and I, I just I wonder, did you, um, did you encounter much of that kind of gender bias when you were researching the
2: book? People talk about it like it's a male thing, when actually, on average, two of the kids who would die on every given day out of the seven would be female. Uh, and so, interestingly, this day that I chose ends up skewing towards people's preconceived ideas, that it's blokes, and that it's black folks. Well, actually, that's kind of not, you know, that's not particularly true at all. To the extent that people who have even read the book will then say to me, so it's about black kids who get shot. And you're like, it really isn't. I mean, it's about kids who get shot. And most of them aren't black. And I know that they've read it, and I know that they have engaged with it, but that it's so kind of deeply ingrained. And so, similarly, with the um, with the with the male thing it's one of the things that kind of goes unsaid or too often about this that you know when when people talk about well what do all these shooters have in common you know how can we stop this and one thing people don't say is well we we're gonna have to talk about masculinity because an awful lot of you know these mass shootings particularly are men and there was a moment i made a conscious decision to only pursue the themes that emerged, which is why I don't talk a lot about gun control because they don't talk a lot about gun control. And with um, uh, Jaden's death uh, at the beginning, so Jaden who's shot by Danny Thornton, who said to his son, I'm not going to be a 47-year-old man living in my car with no job. He shoots Jaden, he then shoots an ex partner but doesn't kill her and then is killed in a shootout with the police. And I really wanted to look at masculinity and guns there. But I couldn't find anybody who was a friend of his. I didn't think it appropriate to kind of ask Jaden's mum, you know, can you talk, you know, can you can you um uh put me in touch with some of the killer's friends and um and i didn't feel that it was also right to kind of try and diagnose someone in their mental health without knowing them and that was the closest i got to being able to address that kind of issue
1: it's interesting there's one moment where um you're talking about the nra the national rifle association Mm and you describe their attachment to firearms as being romantic and, and almost sexual.
2: Mm. Um,
1: and I thought that was very, was very interesting as well because again, it, it's a, a preconception that plays into another preconception. Yeah, And it was interesting to pull it out in the, in the narrative of the story because I think one of the things the book does so well is, as you say in your introduction, you narrate the day, you narrate the stories of the day. There's no kind of manipulation.
2: Well, yeah, there is, I mean, there was this curious thing with the NRA um, so, the NRA convention is in Indianapolis, which is where Kenneth Mills Tucker is shot, maybe 20 minutes away from where the convention is. And the convention takes place maybe five months later. And when you ask them, So, what is this thing with guns? It is a direct and naked appeal to your masculinity. So they say, I, The first question I ask you is Are you married? Um, wow. Do you have children? And then comes the, like, someone breaks into your house and they want to rape your wife and they want to kill your children. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to wait? And, you know, are you going to call the police? And, you know, and it's an appeal to masculinity, to homestead, against government. You know, you can't wait for the government to protect you. And it's also um, uh, statistically daft because actually most, most people who are shot dead in America shoot themselves first of all. Uh, Not kids, but uh, adults. But then secondly, you're most likely to be killed by someone you know, uh, not by someone you don't. And so actually the way that conversation should go is, are you married? Well then watch out for your wife, because she will probably kill you. If anyone's (laughs) going to shoot you, it will be her. Um, So there is a kind of, they create a world, a dystopian world, in which your masculinity comes front and center in being able to defend your own, your kin. You you
0: say this isn't a book about gun control, and that's partially because um, a lot of the families weren't talking about gun mm. control, and I was really interested in that. You say most of them agree that guns are too readily available, mm. but um, they weren't interested in going on anti-gun protests at the NRA convention. They mm. They... They sort of had a hopeless attitude towards guns and gun control.
2: Yeah, a kind of fatalistic. um, I mean, I described it in the book as if they could have been run over, you wouldn't go campaigning against traffic. Maybe you might argue for a stop sign here or there, but no one would say that was unconstitutional. But it's just too difficult, I think, for people to imagine a world without guns there or what um, what any kind of gun control would have done in that particular uh, circumstance. And so they put their emotional energy where they think it makes more sense. And the other thing is that I do think it, it highlights a failing in the gun control movement to go beyond the worthy victim. A lot of these kids in this book have what I would call messy lives. There's one who was a gang member and whose godmother talked to Sean Anderson, whose godmother talks about that, you know, she knows he'd killed people and so on. Pretty much all of the rest are kind of young people. It could be that Kenneth Mills Tucker was involved in the gang. I don't know. But um, the rest have messy lives, and they are... uh, Not all of them, actually. Some of them don't have messy lives at all. You know, it's like um, uh, Brady Bunch lives. But... uh, a chunk of them, they live in areas that gangs run. So just by living there, you're gang-affiliated. You don't have to do anything to be gang-affiliated. You're gang-affiliated in the same way that I'm Hackney-affiliated, because I live in Hackney. And, um, uh, and that maybe they've had a brush with the law. And maybe, I mean, the law in America is not a neutral entity anyway. So, um, But if the gun control movement works on the basis of the worthy victim the innocents and babes basically a new town narrative then it counts all of these people out and these are the people who would be most urgently in favor of gun control who most readily need it so in the absence of anyone that they is reaching them talking about some way to rectify this problem then it would seem kind of, well you know how would it occur to them almost like you know that's that's the problem and then the other thing about the gun control kind of debate in america if you can call it that is it's mostly an awful lot of shouting it's not really a debate even i feel like i can kind of intervene in particularly even you know i mean i know i'm british and that might be a thing but it doesn't seem like one that i'd want to intervene in you know it's Second Amendment, yes, no, you're misinterpreting it, no, I'm not, it's a kind of reliance on ancient texts and, you know, you hate kids and no, you know, it's just kind of not something that you can really, I feel that you can really engage in. So it's a turn off. Um, So first of all, no one's reaching out to them. And secondly, if they did, what would they reach out to them with I'm not you
0: know I'm not sure yeah I, d- I've certainly experienced th- that as an American with relatives who are members of the NRA and have guns and we just don't talk about it anymore yeah. because you can't it's so politicized and it's so emotional and you know I, I y- you say at the end I think quite rightly that gun violence is not just about guns it's about mm. poverty it's about race it's about um, segregation mm. it's about um, bigotry and all of these things and I I wonder if you know I don't want you don't have a solution obviously, and no, this I book don't. isn't trying to posit a solution <laughs> mm. but but what is the best way forward? Maybe it's not gun control, maybe it's something else
2: well i th- I mean I think an awful lot of gun violence would in interestingly, I think an awful lot of gun violence would be cured if America had a decent health care system. Uh, the main provider of mental health services in America are prisons. Well, I mean, how's that going to work? So, um, if you have basically no socialised mental health provision, and then you have the free and easy availability of guns, kind of, what do you think is going to happen? So, I mean, the, that that would make a big difference. I think. I think that if uh, investment in youth services and decent schools would make a big difference. I mean, these gangs. Occupy a terrain that has basically been vacated by the kind of social wings of the state. So there's, you know, in these areas where gangs arrive, there's not much else to do. There's nowhere else to go. There's no, you know. So, in terms of, um, you know, when I spoke to Stanley's friend Trey about, well, you know, so you know, what do you do? He we well, we hang out, you know, on the corner, and I'm like, well.
0: I love that, that they're all chilling. You're chilling. <laughs> you and have I'm no like, idea and what I'm it trying
2: is. to, you know, and I feel, you know, rarely have I felt more like a 46 year old man talking to a 22 year old dude and saying, like, what does that mean? What are you, just talk me through it. You're chilling, you walk out of the house, and then you chill. How? What does that look like? And it's just, we stand around, we talk about ways to get money, we talk about women, we smoke weed, kind of stuff not crazy stuff but you you, you almost goes without saying you're much more likely to be shot in a street corner than you are at home or in a youth club or you know an after-school program or so Uh, uh, and in the absence of those kind of provisions then it's just kind of it's no mystery when you look at who gets shot and everybody in this the one thing that everybody does have in common with this in this book is that they're all working class some of them are poor but they're not all poor, but they are all working class. None of them are comfortable, and um, that tells you something.
1: It's not as if we have all the answers in this country. But obviously, as a Brit reading this text, and you being British, and Carrie being American, and what you just said about NRA family members, you know, it's mm. kind of we obviously have a slightly different different um, conception of it, and you saying that in the book that British culture feels far more violent and far less deadly. And that mm. really struck such a chord with me. I grew up in this country and you know, I'm a white privately educated woman. So I come with a whole bag of privilege that's separate, but this idea that, that there's a violence in the culture here that's very open and drinking mm. and this kind of thing. But the lack of firearms is this vast, it opens yeah. up this gulf,
2: right? Yeah, I mean, it's you know they'll kill you. That's what they're there for. And I, um, a couple of years ago, before I came back to live, uh, returned to live here, I was in Nottingham. Uh, I was staying in a hotel. There was some kind of stag group who came back. They were all drunk. They they managed to get into some big fight. I don't know what it was about because I was woken up by it. But then. At some stage, I thought it was gonna kick off. And I was over from the States for maybe three or four days. I had my American head on and I was just looking around for like where, where should I be right now so that I don't cop a stray bullet and then just realize you're not in America and so they don't have guns. It's very unlikely they have guns. And so they're gonna beat the crap out of each other. One of them might fall through your door But that's not how it's going to go down. And so the NRA have this thing where they say um, guns don't kill people, people kill people, which is an odd thing to say, frankly. I mean, imagine, toasters don't make toast, people make toast. Well, (laughs) fine, but that's the point of a toaster, is to make toast. And, um, you know, we shouldn't be surprised if that's what it does. So guns exist to kill people. That's, That's their role or kill things and they are very good at it so you can kill people with a gun more easily you can kill people with anything else that's commercially available Uh, so on the same day as Newtown a Chinese man goes into a uh, primary school in China with a knife and he doesn't kill anyone, so these are very you know. If you want to kill someone, this will get the job done. And and to have that freely available is already a liability. But then to throw it on top of the tinder of no mental health services, segregation, inequality, poverty, um, uh, all of that is you know. I mean, the thing that I often say to my kids when they're you know balancing a saucepan on their head or whatever, and I, I just say what do you think is going to happen now and that's a little bit what i feel like you know when you're like well you know i wonder what's going to happen next you know all Um, these guns and so little social provision
0: so gary you were the guardian correspondent in the u.s for 12 years Mm -hmm. um and and you talk a bit about that in your introduction and sort Mm -hmm. of throughout um as someone who thought of themselves very much as an outsider uh, a sort of observer someone Mm. who in a way was sort of immune to this culture, but you got invested over time. So could you talk a little bit about that? Cause I was really yeah. interested in that. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, there is an element of anthropology in being a foreign correspondent, you know, you're abroad and you're looking at, and you know, oh, that's interesting. Why is that? And you're talking to someone and they're saying things that are either you, you disagree with, or you think are bizarre, but that you're curious. Uh, now, my wife is American. She's African-American. And uh, there was this moment, I think it was 2004, 2005, where I go to Mississippi to cover an old civil rights case that has reemerged, And I stop to ask a couple of old white folk in rural Mississippi directions. And I say, excuse me, can you direct me to Rock Cut Road? And the woman shouts out, we got a gun. We got a gun. oh God, that's odd. And I said, um, yeah, I'm looking for Rock Cut Road. So I'm just wondering, am I going in the right direction? We're going to shoot you. We got a gun. And I was with a radio producer, actually. We are doing this thing for Radio 4. And uh, um, no, not for Radio 4, for the World Service, I think. And then I saw, (laughs) I see the guy go around the back. I said, I think he's going to get a gun. I think we better go. And we jump in the car and we drive off. And I'm kind of laughing a little bit hysterically, but also just actually, that was really funny. Um, those old white people are kind of funny. And then I get home and I say to my wife, oh, it's the funniest thing happened. You know, I tell her the story. And she's like, that's not funny. And her brother's like, that's not funny. And I said, yeah, girl, come on. You know, you're driving around and you ask someone the direction. like, And they're like, no, they will shoot you. And that was the beginning of thinking, yeah. Somehow I have this sense that I'm immune somehow, a little bit. Like I'm just a onlooker, but actually it's a play. I'm, I'm not just in the audience here. And um, and then I have kids, and then you kind of got skin in the game. And I'm talking to a Republican, maybe or someone. Doesn't matter who. And they say something, and you think, you know, someone actually said something a bit like that at school the other day. And I've, I've had enough of that. You know, and that you become invested. And that's partly about being there for a length of time. And it's partly, I do think, about particularly having children, so people that you're responsible for. And then hearing people who would otherwise, you think, are kind of, you know, decent and saying, saying things, we you think... That's just really offensive. And it's not just offensive on some uh, abstract or ideological level. You are talking about my kid. And then those moments, you know, when the gun washes up after a Chicago winter next to the park, next to the school.
0: Your kid's school.
2: My kid's school. Shoot out near the um, daycare my wife being out with my daughter, she's about three months old, she's trying to bob her to sleep in the carrier, and she calls and is like, there's a shootout between me and the house, like, you're going to have to come get me, and I don't even live in the worst part of Chicago, by a long way, I'm on the north side, it's actually quite nice, and, um, yeah, suddenly, when you see the words gun violence, you don't think, oh, this country is so crazy, you think, um, yeah, that kind of it didn't happen to me insofar as I wasn't shot, but it's happened to me every day insofar as I'm surrounded by it.
1: Was that part of your reasoning for coming back? If that's not too personal,
2: it's not too personal, but it it wasn't actually. I mean, the, the, the our return was based on a series of banal, f- personal things, not. Not intimate, just personal things, and you know my wife is from Chicago, so she wasn't really into New York anyway. Um, and I just thought, why are we trying so hard to live in a really expensive city that you could take or leave, and I could take or leave, when we could live back in London? And but it is why. And if you were t- if you were looking to escape racism and poverty, you wouldn't come back to Hackney. I mean, I'm not sure where you would go. I'm not sure that you can escape those things. But, um, I mean, fair enough, to escape the possibility of gun violence, you might. But um, uh, my family is from Barbados originally, and we're traveling people. So I've got family all over the world. And so I actually assumed that we would be staying in America, and I'd kind of made my peace with that. But what it did do was that once we'd made the decision, it was why I never thought i don't know maybe we'll stay you know and particularly after this book i was like you know i'm actually kind of quite glad we're leaving because i'm not gonna have to deal with this anymore
1: yeah i mean the really profound message that it left me with is a a quotation just from the end where you say segregation is a serious barrier to empathy and that is absolutely true how can you possibly expect a society to become cohesive when they can't even look each other in the eye.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was, it, um, there's, a, there's a bit with the Samuel Brightman story. He's walking down the road in uh, Dallas and he's just shot, nobody knows why. White Lincoln just rolls up, blows him away. And the comment at the bottom of the piece from this woman who says, you know, parents should really kind of find out where, you know, where their children are. And he basically blames Samuel's mum then you meet Samuel's mum and they were playing Uno and drinking cocoa and watching We're the Millers and then Samuel decided to walk his friend the six minutes home his friend had come in order to go to church with his granny the morning before it was, you know you don't really get much more wholesome than that and um, his mum knew where he was she just couldn't save him but thanks to segregation Then people assume, well, that's Pleasant Grove, which is a rough part of Dallas, and therefore these children are running wild. And one of the things I want the book to do is to create the possibility of empathy. That, look, statistically, if you're wealthy or white or both, maybe statistically it's not going to be your kids, statistically but are these kids actually so different from your kids or kids you know? And are these parents actually really so different from you as a parent or parents you know? This is not some other species that this is happening to. These are human beings who often live in exactly in the same city. They may even share the same zip code. But thanks to the way that segregation, both economic and racial works, people have internalized the notion that they don't think like I do, that their kids aren't like my kids. And I think by the end of the book, hopefully people that, yes, these are young people. Young people take risks, they misbehave, they don't always do what their parents say, they like playing video games.
0: They post on silly things on they social media.
2: Post <laughs> crazy things <laughs> on social media. They, you know, maybe taking soft drugs. They're, they're not so different, actually, for the most part.
0: And one final question. A lot has changed in the time since this day happened. Mm. You know, um, Donald Trump, a racist bigot, is now <laughs> the nominee for uh, the Republicans in the presidential election. Um, Black Lives Matter has hugely taken off. I think it started mm. before 2013. Mm. Um, uh, but it's it's now a, a serious movement in the mm. United States. But I also get the sense that not a lot has changed in terms of what's happening here, and, and I can sense your frustration with that. So what do you think about that dynamic?
2: Yeah, I mean, this date happens in between George Zimmerman's acquittal, which is when the Black Lives Matter hashtag is coined, and um, Michael Brown's shooting which is when it kind of really takes off Mm -hmm. and it doesn't fit into the dominant narratives associated with black lives matter so it's these are all people who are killed by the same race and none of them are state versus citizen there's no police shootings um but it does fall into this different space that you know is really intensified in you know since that date uh, and curiously since I've been doing it people have been saying wow well, when your but you should maybe you should bring your book forward you know because this is such an important you know this is it's really timely and you think yeah but there's actually never been a time when it hasn't been timely sadly and it will remain timely and sure enough not that I was praying for this but In the week that it comes out, there's Charlotte, there's San Diego, there's the young girl testifying in Charlotte about, you know, why are you shooting us? There are this, you know, it it doesn't stop. And so even though it doesn't speak to those specific pathologies of race and gun, uh, it speaks to a general uh, uh, American pathology of death and youth.
0: Well, on that cheery uh, note, but uh, an important note, Gary Young, thank you so much for coming on. The book is called Another Day in the Death of America, and it is moving and saddening and I think a rallying cry for something needing to be done. We will be back to talk about the theme, but first here is a little music. (laughs) So we're back on Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and that was Gary Young. So based upon um, Gary's book, Another Day in the Death of America, we are going to be talking about the death of America, or more um, particularly, I suppose, um, violence in American literature, and what it can maybe tell us about what we at least perceive to be quite a violent society in today's world. So First, a caveat, which is we picked quite a broad topic. Pretty big, yeah. Pretty big. (laughs) And um, so we'll only be touching on some things. And also, I should say that violence in literature is a very broad topic. Generally, it's not just in American literature. I mean, if you think about Shakespeare or the Greek tragedies, those are incredibly violent, um, filled with death and gore and Killing and part of societies that were very different from our own and had different moral codes, um, but but were were peppered with violence. And and you only have to watch Game of Thrones to to see what a violent world it is out there. But I do think that America today, and there are statistics to support this, is a more violent society than than other countries like it. I mean, there I read something that. Um, Americans are seven times more likely to die from violence than people in other high-income nations, That's similar to it, which is shocking. Shocking, really yeah. shocking,
1: isn't it? Yeah. Um,
0: and, you know, the, the, the statistics are even higher when you talk about gun violence, where, of course, America still it leads the world in, in terms of similar nations, and, and Gary says a lot about that in his interviews. So what does literature have to tell us
1: about America as a violent society? Octavia, all way. <laughs> I have the answer in a one minute soundbite to that <laughs> enormous question. Well, I think it's, it's about reflecting. Literature always reflects the reality around it, whether it's realist or not, um, because it comes out of the imaginations of writers, and we're all sponges, um, and especially writers, you know, they're picking up and, and reflecting off things all the time. Um, and when I think about American culture, In literature, but also in cinema, I kind of feel like that is part of the discourse here as well, because the movies are so American, Hollywood and all of that, and a lot of films that come out of literature. Um, But it's the presence of guns. It's the presence of guns that sets it completely apart. Although having said that, when I was thinking about this, I remembered um, a book called White Fang, which I read as a young as a slip of a thing <laughs> by a writer called Jack London. And he also wrote a book called Call of the Wild. Yeah, I haven't read either of them. They are fascinating because they get to the heart of this kind of violent American culture, but they're allegorical. They, they are about animals. Um, and they're kind of, a, they're a fascinating pair, actually. Um, both set in the, Clon- during the Klondike gold rush in the Yukon. So up in North America, can- Canadian territory. Um, and Call of the Wild is about Buck, who's a domesticated dog who gets kidnapped. And his tale is one of endurance and having to reconnect with his wild, feral instincts in order to survive. So to become hard and lose his softness. And then White Fang is a, a journey that happens in the opposite direction. And White Fang, is a, the eponymous character, is a wolf dog. And he's a feral, wild, um, wolfy, lupine animal. And it's about his journey to domestication. Um, and in both of the books the presence of the natural world is brutal and, you know, puppies and kittens get killed and it's terribly devastating. Um, But it has, both of them have this kind of theme that we see picked up again and again in American literature about the kind of individual fighting against a hostile environment and needing to connect with a kind of animalistic, pure violence, which is something that I, I see coming up again and again. It comes up in you know, a lot of Steinbeck's literature. Um,
0: Yes, and I think we've talked about this on the show before. I do think it's legitimate to talk about themes in American literature as they relate to American culture, particularly because American literature has been obsessed almost since its obsession with um, self-definition and also... um, literature being intimately connected with how we define and create America itself so Mm. you know these novelists were thinking about it not all all novelists but I think when people sit down to write a novel about America especially if it's a sort of state of the nation novel um, it doesn't exist in a bubble and that's true of all literature but I think it's especially true of American literature but to pick up on that strand of individualism that you talk about I think there, there's violence in all literature, as discussed. But I think there are some particularly American strands of violent literature that we can talk about here. Um, one is war literature, but I think we should leave that to one side. We've talked about it on the show before, um, and you know, war literature is something that exists in all countries who have experienced war, taking different forms. But leave it to the side. Um, but the, you know, the, the idea of the frontier. Um, persists in America and was persistent through much of the course of its history. And, um, that hasn't entirely gone away. It led to this sense of rugged individualism. Um, and the genre of the Western really springs from that and, and in the Western, and this has been challenged more in the sort of postmodern world by writers like Cormac McCarthy, but, but violence is pure and good. And it's the only way to survive. Um, much in the, not to mention Game of Thrones again, but I think that <laughs> <But> you're gonna, <laughs> but I'm gonna, um, it, I mean, that's a show about how that violence is really the only way forward. There's no other way to live, and and that is true in a Western, and I think that is really indicative of, of American culture and society.
1: Yes, I think that's that's true that there's this, uh, an attempt to make violence noble in some way, but then the flip side, the other side of the coin is obviously America is a country, a culture, a nation built on um, colonized land, and the act of colonial possession is an act of violence, yeah. fundamentally. And Westward
0: Expansion was
1: all about that. Exactly. And so you have this um, culture of individualism that grows out of the need to assert dominance over other races and, and indigenous cultures. Um, and then, obviously, the very violent history of the slave trade and America's shameful past, you know, which we, we must call it. And, and I was thinking of a book called The Color Purple by Alice mm. Walker, um, which is about oppression and violence and also the intersection of sexism and racism. And there's a quote that comes out, which I think is so powerful, which is, all my life I had to fight. I had to fight my daddy. I had to fight my brothers. I had to fight my cousins and my uncles. A girl child ain't safe in a family of men. And again, there's, there's a, a sort of sense of that fight being noble in some way because it's just adversity from day one.
0: Yeah, I I was... I think you're right to bring up colonization and also slavery um, as, you know, inescapable and especially in novels by minority voices, whether they be black or gay or, um, you know, women even. Uh, And I think it's interesting that you bring up... I was thinking of the novel Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, which I actually... uh, i I return to all the time as a really important novel that I read, but in the experience of reading it, I really didn't like it really. um I just don't think it's a very well written novel. I'm ah, gonna, I burn might get, <laughs> I might get hate mail about this, but I think I think it's a I think it's a fascinating novel. Um, there's a lot of sort of marxist like tangents and strange, but but scenes in it are so powerful. It's basically his his version of um, Dostoevsky's uh, Notes from Underground, this, this sort of um, nameless narrator, black narrator, who, who tries to live in the world and, and is unable to do so. But in that, in that novel, violence is, is presented as um, sort of the only way out, and I think that's so interesting that it, it's the cycle of violence, violence that begets violence, rather than any other solution that, that doesn't involve killing and dying.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I was also thinking of um, Beloved by Toni Morrison, Mm. which I've actually never read, but it it has this status as being a really significant vocalisation of oppression and the, the fear and... Um, again, it's a very violent text, um, mm. and there's also a strand, strand of bestiality in it. It was ba- it was banned, I think, for a while because it was considered to be so shocking. But that's what happens. Yeah, when... on
0: the first page, they talk about fucking cows, and there you
1: go. Yeah, and the subaltern speaks. You know, it's kind of the the violence of a voice that is unheard thus far, breaking through a taboo as well, is a very powerful thing. I also couldn't help but think of the beat poets, and and particular, obviously Ginsberg's Howl, which is you know a bit of a game changer in 1956 when when it's published um and you hear all of the recordings of him reading it and again it's a different kind of violence it's not a story of gun-toting cowboys or anything you're getting very abstract
0: here you know that's what I like
1: to do on a Friday night
0: taking it very that we should not reveal to our readers that we're (laughs) recording this on a Friday night before we (laughs) Um, go to a really awesome party that's obviously what's Mm -hmm. gonna happen
1: next um but how, where he, he he's, it's, a, it's this rageful, extraordinary text about what he calls the best minds of his generation who are all outsiders. They're all sexually transgressive, drug-using. Um, and and it's, a, it's a kind of cry, call to arms against this stultifying, homogenous, industrial civilization that's going on. And I always think of it in contrast to that kind of the Pleasantville 1950s America, picket fence, house, garden, 2.4 kids, whatever, which normativity can be another kind of violence. You know, it smothers people. Um, and I think that's... So violence basically encompasses all things. Yeah, everything's violent, <laughs> if you get down to it. <laughs> sorry, sorry,
0: you were making a really wonderful no, it's point. No, undercutting just, me I'm as sorry. ever. No,
1: okay, but I'm going to say one thing yeah, right now, okay. which is let's talk about Brett Easton Ellis. Because yes. Because we're going to talk about violence in American literature. Yes.
0: We have very little time to talk about Brett Easton Ellis, but I agree. Well, I think we can... We can tie that to the way that contemporary quote unquote authors have tried to depict violence in America as they see it in their time, not historically. And yeah. I think Brett Easton Ellis is a great example of that with American Psycho.
1: And also, what about the glamorization of violence? You know, yeah. Brett Easton Ellis is the Tarantino of literature in some ways, isn't he?
0: Yeah, and and the and when is violence satire, and when is it just gratuitous? glamorization and I think I think with violence and we talked about this I think when we talked about war literature as well it's can you ever depict violence without in some ways normalizing it and is that a ethically wrong decision I'm not sure I think I I would never want to I'm not in favor of banning books, but I also think people have to think really hard about why they're reading books about violence. I mean, even Gary's book, I have to say, there's a morbid fascination to it. Why do we read those stories? It's not because you know, part of it is that we want to read about somebody getting shot. And maybe I shouldn't admit that. But I think I think it's true. I think there's, there's something incredibly powerful about that emotionally powerful about that book that isn't just related to moral outrage.
1: I agree. I think also, it's because violence is at the same time, transgressive, and also the most normal thing in the world. And that's what we struggle with getting our heads around it, you know, that you pull a trigger, you, you, you take someone else's life away, that's a transgressive act. And yet, it is the least surprising thing in the world in the context of American culture.
0: Yeah, and there have been all kinds of novels that have tried to, you know, find a way to describe the experience of a school shooting or gun violence. You know, I think we like to think of novels as things that can make sense of things that are nonsensical or indescribable. And I think that that has been done to to better and worse... Ends, um, but it's a very interesting thing that is going to keep happening in America. So, very, very quickly, um, let's say our
1: recommendations. Okay, I'm up first.
0: Yes. So, what is your favorite book about violence in America, Octavia?
1: Dun, dun, dun. It is We Need to Talk About Kevin by yeah. Lionel Shriver, which uh, stoned me down, completely knocked me off my feet when I read it when it came out in 2003. So, I was the tender age of 17 and um, I found it so profoundly shocking, moving, um, it twisted itself up in my guts. I will never read it again, I don't want to go through that again, but it stuck with me. And and when I'm writing, actually, I think about it as well, because it's not only a devastating story, but it's a very skillfully told story and a very skillfully constructed in a kind of authorial voice. Um, and it's epistolary, for anyone who hasn't read it, do read it. And um, I'm not going to talk about it too much because the twist is vital. Um, but it follows this character, Eva Cachadorian, um, writing letters to her husband, and she's. you find out that she's the mother of a boy called Kevin who's committed a school massacre, Columbine-style thing. Um, and it's about culpability, it's about morality, it's about the violent aspects of child-rearing also, you know, and having children that are out of your control. It asks questions about nature and nurture. And one of the things that it made me reflect on a lot is that if you bring a child into a culture that is inherently violent, i.e. in the United States with its gun laws, what does that, what effect is that going to have on that child? Um, and really, it's also debating the the question of if there's pure evil. And if there's pure evil out there, if pure evil exists, then... There's kind of nothing we can do, whether or not we legalize guns, whether or not we wrap our children in cotton wool. Um, so I, I think, but I think it really captures a fascination of that very American um, atrocity, which is the school massacre. You know, which yeah. is so embedded in people's psyches.
0: I think Lionel Shriver is very good at, first of all, writing books that make us think about all of the preconceived notions we have and and really flip them on their heads Um, and also at taking things like school massacres or obesity and writing something that really gets to the heart of those issues yeah taking in all of its grisly messy ways
1: yeah I think she's a very fearless writer yeah
0: I also think she says some wacko stuff sometimes. But oh anyway. yeah, that's also um, so true. <laughs> <laughs> my other my, well, my recommendation is I, I was thinking about this and I initially was having quite a lot of trouble with it because I don't really like violent books, um, or at least at least I like to think of myself as someone who doesn't like violent books. Um, and then I realized that basically every book in the American canon is about violence anyway, as you have so rightly pointed out, and I so rightly accused you of. Um, Waffling wrongly, about. wrongly. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but so, so um, the, then there were too many books to recommend. But um, the the thing I finally decided to recommend um, is a short story actually, and it uh, I wanted to recommend it because Anna Jean came on um, last show and was talking about Shirley Jackson, and I think the best thing that Shirley Jackson has ever written is this short story called The Lottery. Um, it was written in 1948. It's about a lottery held in a small American village. And I'm not going to say anything else um, because I don't want to ruin it. But it's tremendously creepy. And it has a lot to say about violence and violence in America specifically. And there's a great legend behind it. I'm not sure if it's true. Um, but the story is that it, it, so it first ran in the New Yorker. And apparently when Shirley Jackson submitted it, the editor said, okay, this is perfect. I only want to change one thing. I just want to make the date the date that the magazine goes out. Um, so, the date on the front of the magazine was the same date as the one in the story, which was June 27th. So, go and read The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. All right, I will. So, we're going to hear a song, and then we'll be back with Gary to do our book recommendations. This is Literary Friction. We are back with Gary Young for our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start?
1: Always. Um, I'm afraid this month I've been really feeble in the reading states. Um, I've been trundling on with a little life, which any regular listeners will know I decided to embark upon recently. Um, and actually, I've been a complete wuss about it. Everything is still fine in their lives, and I know that means the tragedies are starting to you know, crest on the horizon. <clears throat> so I've been really, uh, really lazy about it, which means I haven't really read that much recently. Um, but I'm going to talk about uh, uh, the giant biography of Chekhov that I've just ordered on the recommendation of a friend who said you will fall in love with him. I fell in love with him. And I thought, you know, it's been a while since I've fallen in love. Last time in, uh, <laughs> last time in literature, especially was with Alexander the Great, reading the Alexander trilogy. So it's it's arriving. But I think. I'm going to be giving you guys really slow updates on it because it's about 600 pages long. So it's right. going to take me a little while. Um, but just so that I'm not completely cheating, uh, I can recommend something I re- revisited recently, which is T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. I was looking at it for a project I'm working on and it electrified me when I first read it as a teenager and it did it the same thing all over again. Um, so if, you, if you're looking for something to inspire and also make you aware of kind of the deeper things in life and also make you laugh, the Wasteland is my my number one for the, for the time being, but yeah, you guys can probably Great. make slightly more solid recommendations. <laughs> well, this we'll month. see. <laughs> we shall see, Gary.
2: <laughs> um, I'm going to recommend The Seventh Man by John Berger, which is um, uh, this really kind of poetic account of migration, and it's mostly, I think, Turkish migrants into Switzerland or Germany. It's from the 70s, but it works as well today as it did uh, then. And it's um, I mean, John Berger uses these vignettes to kind of build this sense of the psyche of both migrants and migration. And there's wonderful lines about you know, like my parents who came from Barbados, they came and they were going to earn some money and then go back, but then you know they end up staying and and Berger writes um. Uh the gold fell from the sky, but because it fell from the sky, it landed and went very deep. you know, and so that sense of kind of um, I think you
0: caught that in
2: I think I might, yeah book? because um, uh, Edwin's yeah, m- yeah that's it. is um, uh, undocumented and um, uh, and he talks about you know a capitalism ordered labor, but people came. And just this kind of the humanisation of that experience. uh, It's easy to read. It's not a polemic. It's kind of much more poetic than that. And I just think in this particular moment, post-Brexit, Syria, and all of that, just to give a sense of the humanity of that experience is valuable thing
1: sounds like it would make a good pair with the good immigrant which has just come out as well uh, yeah. which is fabulous the essays that I've read I haven't read all of it but I will <laughs> yeah. and then I recommend it <laughs> <laughs>
0: is this the same John Berger the, the art historian the ways of, ways of seeing. seeing yeah yeah, yeah. 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 god same he right. was oh, really? phenomenal he now. also yeah. wrote G that novel about a guy having sex with everyone I mean, I it's more deep that. than that, obviously, but oh, right. he—he's obviously um, multi-talented. He was a big brain. Yeah, mm. an interest in lo- that sounds fascinating. Thank you. Um, and then finally. Um, listeners of literary friction will know that I was li- recently on holiday and I had very grand plans for all of the books that I was going to read which um, off Carrie. no no well no t- listen <laughs> <laughs> um but I didn't get through quite as much as I had uh, oh, really? as I had yeah, planned yeah,
2: yeah. on is that because you had a really good holiday <laughs> was it was a really
0: good holiday <laughs> um but not not a lot of holidays. time for reading lots of relatives um uh, and but but also lovely walks and beaches and things okay. like that so yeah, it's, we're both it's fine to hate you right yeah.
1: Now. yeah I really hate you quite <laughs> low
0: right now um but no this isn't just me showing off so so one of the books I did read um was one I read on the recommendation of a number of people actually but mainly Octavia um and she's already recommended it on the show so I'll, I'll be um very quick with it but the Argonauts by Maggie Nelson I literally um, can't wait to talk to you about it yeah I know I, I really want to talk to you about it I um know. I it's as sort of weird and wonderful and messy and well-written and emotional and thoughtful, as you said. And um, you know, I, I, it was one of those books that it's quite short and I finished it and immediately wanted to read it again because I knew wow. there was so much richness and, and things I'd missed. And she's just thinking really deeply about gender and childbearing and uh, lots of different things. Love. So I think she just won a MacArthur Genius Grant as well which wow. sort of upset. I mean, I'm really happy for her, but also I sort of wanted to keep her to myself. And now I feel like maybe the secret, I mean, the secret's been out for a while. Secret's anyway. been out for a while <laughs> okay. So, so then my second, uh, actual recommendation maybe is a book. I also haven't finished. That's about 600 pages long. Um, but I started on my holiday, which is, um, the portrait of a lady by Henry James old school. Yeah. So I'd been wanting to read this forever. People keep recommending it to me. Um, And I'd never read anything by Henry James, which I'm, maybe, maybe that's embarrassing. I think that's okay. I don't know. Um, I won't tell anyone. (laughs) (laughs) um, But I can see why people were recommending this to me. And I'm now sort of obsessed with Henry James. Um, He writes a lot about, actually, this might appeal to you as well, about the differences between America and the old world. And a lot of his books are about Americans coming to Europe and sort of um, all of the the differences that emerge. And um, I can say that a lot of these things are still true, um, even many years after he wrote it in 1880. It's just um, the sort of brash, cultural brashness of America rubbing up against um, in imp- intimate yes, subtlety is. <laughs> 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 um, but also he's just the master of free and direct style. Um, he's, he has a wonderful way of getting into the brains of his characters and, and creating full, rich characters. The, the Isabel Archer, who's the central character in this novel, is um, flawed and thoughtful and just, you know, you, the kind of character that you do want to spend 600 pages with. Um, and I can't wait to read the West.
1: Good stuff. Okay, I'll race you <laughs> to the end of 600 pages.
2: I was going to say you should just pick smaller books. <laughs> thank you, Gary. You weigh them first. <laughs> the best really? thing
0: that's ever been said on our radio. Great show. advice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Gary. Thank you so much. Thank you. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to Gary Young, whose book Another Day in the Death of America is out now, and to Eddie Knight
1: for production and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and on nts.live. You can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please leave comments and give us a rating.
0: Last month, I said we'd have Emer McBride on the show next month. Um, this obviously is not a show featuring Emer McBride, but I'm very happy to say that she will be our guest on the next show, on the 31st of October. Um, you may have seen the many tube ads for her novel, The Lesser Bohemians, or even read it. She's amazing. She was just shortlisted for the Goldsmiths Prize, and we can't wait to have her on.
1: The book is fabulous.
0: Yes. I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.